Hello, and welcome to The Sound of Thinking. I'm Kelly Dean Jolly. I'm very pleased today to welcome Carly Lane to the show. Carly Lane teaches and preaches as a lay minister in the Episcopal Church. She also works as a private academic tutor. She studied in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago and earned her master's degree reading in philosophy, religion, literature, and political theory. She writes creative nonfiction. Her current writing project explores pleasure, privacy, and reproductive ethics. She lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee with her husband and their two young children. Carly, I'm very pleased to have you with us. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. We're going to be talking today about a figure that is, I think, of tremendous interest, a woman of tremendous interest, uh, Simone Weil. But I think she's someone that a lot of people probably either haven't heard of, or if they've heard of her, they've seen her name here or there, but may not have actually spent much time reading anything by her, or may not have really heard very much about her beyond what was uh, said, perhaps, in the reference to her. And I was hoping you could start us off by just telling us a little bit about they. Sure. Um, in in broad strokes, they is a, a philosopher, a social and political thinker. Um, over the course of her life, she's by turns a a pacifist, a Marxist, an activist. Um, she, uh, she's a mystic, but as a mystic, she doesn't have a spiritual home. We usually think of, you know, a Christian mystic or a Jewish mystic, and, and she's none of these. She's a, um, a wandering mystic. And as a mystic, she, um, she, she never abandons her social political projects. So, She's deeply engaged with the oppressed, um, deeply concerned for, for people who are, are suffering. Um, and, that, and that goes from the very start of her life in early childhood all the way to the very end. Mm -hmm. So I'd be happy to, to sort of walk through some of those moments. I know that that's... Yes, that'd be fine. That, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, well, she's, so she's born in, in 1909 as a, a healthy infant, and she's born to a, a bourgeois, assimilated Jewish family. Born healthy, but at six months of age, succumbs to appendicitis. And from that point on, she's, she's really quite sickly. Um, at like five years old, six years old, she refuses sugar. <laughs> This is this is the first um, noted reported um, <laughs> dietary restriction that she places on herself. Um, she refuses sugar out of solidarity with the troops at the Western Front, and I'm I'm particularly interested in that um, for a couple of reasons. As we'll see, that that's going to become a, a a way for her to organize her asceticism um, is to to find some group of suf suffering others and then attempt to suffer as they suffer. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also, I'm, I'm interested in the fact that she's just five, six years old when she does this. And that's really too young to have elaborated a rationale. Um, it, there's something really instinctive for her about this move, impulsive. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what, what it is that's inspiring that on, mm -hmm. for her. Um, yeah, so she, in childhood, she's, she's quite close to her parents, even as she wrestles with 
their um, their complacency, their their self satisfaction, um, their bourgeois lifestyle. She's really close also to Andre, her older brother. And Andre Vey is, is a huge name in mathematics. Um, from really early on, it's clear that he's a prodigy. And as a child, she, as close as she is to him, she struggles um, comparing herself to him and finding herself, you know, short, short of his genius, um, mm -hmm. finding herself quite lacking. Um, there's, the, there's this great story. A friend of her mother's comes to the house and announces to her mother, but of course, Simone, Simone overhears this. She says, you know, there, there is the genius pointing to Andre and, and there, there is the beauty pointing to Simone. And Simone is just horrified by this. Um, so, so the family has a, um, a real fear of germs to begin with. Her father's a doctor and, and they're a little bit phobic. So the house is very, very clean and they're a little bit weird about um, touch, contamination. But Simone seems to, to take this even further. And, and as a child, without, again, without any kind of religious impetus, because it's not a religious household, um, she, she seems to have this notion of defilement. So um, she, she de even though she's quite warm and, and, and is sometimes reported as having been a happy child, she, she refuses touch. Hmm. Um, and that, that's something that she does f for the rest of her life. Um, so that, you know, she has, she has one friend who can remember being touched once by her. Um, and it made a huge impression because it was the only time. So she, she eschews touch, she eschews her own beauty. She works very hard to, um, to mute that. She, she dresses in men's clothing. She wears flat shoes. She won't wear makeup. Um, she, yeah, she just will not be as lovely as she is, will not be charming. Um, in adolescence, she, she undergoes her first really profound bout of depression and, and is actually suicidal. Puberty has brought with it excruciating migraines and she's, she suffers these through the end of her life. And I, I'm not clear on what exactly brings her out of her depression, that depression that hits her in adolescence. Um, I've heard some speculate that this depression really has to do with Andre and his brilliance and, and his shiny place in the world. Um, some have suggested that, that what allows her to, to, to work through that depression is the insight that while Andre has a, a genius to be sure, um, a brilliance, there is something, something else and something to the side of that kind of intelligence, which is, which is wisdom or goodness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she, I think, finds a, a territory that she can stake claim to there. That, that's going to be her project. As a teenager, she's a, a Marxist, a pacifist, a trade unionist, um, just profoundly concerned for the good of the lower classes. And in, let's see, in 1931, at the age of 19, she's uh, admitted to l'école normale supérieure. Uh, she, 
so they've, they've just started admitting women in 1917. Um, and I, I find it helpful in, because we can, we can sort of make a, a mockery of her joke. She's sort of clownish in her, um, in her flight to ugliness in her, mm-hmm. um, her you know, in the ways that she desexes herself. Um, but, but as a woman of her gifts and her, her intellectual ambitions and her social and political ambitions, she's in a real bind. And so it, it may be that this was um, strategic and, and effective in, in getting her through mm-hmm. um, the education that she, she craved for herself um, appropriately. She's, she's made fun of in the course of her studies. Her, her teachers and her peers refer to her as the Red Virgin um, she's, she's taken, this is private, of course, but she's taken a, a vow of, of chastity. Um, she's made that decision really early on in life that she's going to forgo any kind of erotic attachment. Um, red, red because of the Marxism. Mm-hmm. They also call her the Martian. Um, I mean, for all of that, she, she finishes first in her general philosophy and logic exam with Simone de Beauvoir finishing second. So she clearly mm. does quite well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, while in school through her 20s, she she grows critical of Marxism and socialism. And so at this point, she's she's critical of capitalism still. But now she's also critical of socialism. Um, and of course, as we'll see, she's she's horrified by fascism. And these are kind of the three political options mm-hmm. um, playing themselves out in the European scene. So following following her schooling, she writes a thesis in Descartes. Um, she gets her teaching certificate, goes on to teach in a girl's school. You know, so far, this is rather pedestrian. This is sort of what, what one would do as a, a woman of her gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in 1932, she's 23 years old, and she's, again, teaching. But she, she takes a vacation, visits Germany, and she has this really prescient comprehension. She, it's, she sees very clearly that the trade unionists, the various forms of resistance on the ground are just no match for, for fascism mm-hmm. as it's mounting in the streets. And, um, and so she comes back to France with, with that knowledge and with a sense of urgency around that. Um, and I think very, very chastened by that too. You know, these are her own ideas um, put into practice and, and falling short of the, the political exigencies at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, so at, at 25, she takes a sabbatical year from teaching. And, you know, as a teacher, she's, she's giving all her money away to the poor. Um, she's, she's still very much engaged. She's writing all the time and writing for um, trade publications. You know, she's not, she's not submitting her work to, um, you know, publications that belong to the ivory tower or to the bourgeois. She's, she's really trying to be as on the ground as she can be. Um, and, and she takes a sabbatical and she, she goes incognito into two different factories, actually. She, she wants to work alongside factory workers. That's what she wants to do with her sabbatical, um, to suffer as they suffer, uh, to test her ideas against, against life itself, against experience itself, to understand something of their, um, their experience. She, she finds this work totally deadening and is really alarmed by the um, the docility that it inspires in mm-hmm. herself and in the people around her. She says that it, it, 
it enslaves her. It makes a slave of her. It enslaves her soul. Um, she finds that thinking is just not possible. And um, of course, this is going to be really bad news for anyone whose ideas of the revolution. I mean, there are all sorts of problems with, you know, Marxist revolution, socialist revolution. Um, but one of the problems is that these these people are not fit to rule. Um, a real destruction has has taken place on the level of their soul. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and that, that concerns her, her greatly. She just a year later, so this will be the, the first of three religious experiences that she has that are, are quite definitive for her. So just a year later, she's in Portugal. Um, there's a, a religious ceremony happening in the streets. The fishermen are gathered, they're singing. I, I believe it's a veneration of a saint. Um, she's, she's so moved by the beauty of this festival, but beyond just being moved by the beauty of it, she is suddenly struck by the thought that Christianity is essentially a religion for slaves. And you know, it's a sort of Nietzschean insight um, regarding what Christianity is about. But but unlike Nietzsche, who of course you know resents that and, right. and um, you know is appalled and wants to work against that, he, she she says, well, and since I'm a slave, you know, this is something she knows by virtue of her her work in a factory. Since I'm a slave, uh, it must be my religion too. And, and she says that, she says that without, without then, you know, running herself off to church. It's not, it's not that she becomes a Christian in any of the ways that we would think of a person becoming a Christian at that mm -hmm. point. Right. But this is her first um, real, real uptake, you know, her sense that here, here is something um, that, that has its fingers in me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the, the next religious experience happens a year later. She's 27. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. So, so it's actually a couple of years later, but actually it's important maybe to, to tuck this in there before, before, between her first religious experience and her second, uh, and at the age of 27, she, uh, decides that she needs to join in combat in the Spanish civil war. So she's abandoned her pacifism, you know, long ago. Um, but she's got this notion that she's going to, um, take up her rifle and, and go fight. And of course she's, um, so again, I want to say this without making a clown out of her. She's, she is, uh, she's short sighted. She nearsighted. She's, uh, she's clumsy. She's frail. She's, um, she's small. I mean, she's an absolute liability to anybody right. in her path. Um, certainly, a, you know, a gun is not what you want in her hands. And, and her commander recognizes this, the, the people around her, the men and women fighting around her recognize this. They're constantly trying to find jobs for her that will, minimize the risk to others she ends up um stepping into a a fire somehow a pot of of boiling water falls on her foot scalds her so she's she's now injured at this point and her parents swoop in and smuggle her out um which is which is sort of what her parents are are doing throughout her early adulthood um it's it, it's quite poignant and painful to, to think about what their experience must have been to see mm -hmm. their daughter. So, um, so lacking in kind of basic self-preservational instincts and 
Yeah. So, so then a year later, she has this, um, the second religious experience. She's in Assisi. She, um, she enters the chapel in which St. Francis and his brethren used to gather. And this chapel is housed within the larger Basilica of St. Mary and, um, or St. Mary of the Angels. So she, she enters the small chapel housed within this rather grand basilica and is suddenly brought to her knees, um, is compelled. So again, this emphasis on, you know, something happening to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, she finds this quite strange. This is, this is new for her to be on her knees like this. And then these experiences, you know, with the, in Portugal, with the religious ceremony, and then here in Assisi, they, they culminate in a third experience. Um, she's in Solem the next year at 29, in Solem with her mother for Holy Week. And they're there, it's an aesthetic holiday. They're there to hear the Gregorian chants, um, which of course are, you know, quite moving, quite beautiful. She has met an Englishman there who's who's introduced her to the poetry of George Herbert and taught her the poem Love, um, Love Three. And while in Salem, she's she's overcome by these attacks of migraines. Again, she's had migraines since actually I don't know that I've mentioned this. It, starting in puberty, she has really excruciating migraines that just take her out. Um, and so she's having a bout of migraines here in, in Salem. And at the the height of one of these migraines and in just insufferable pain, she finds herself reciting this poem, Love, by Herbert. And in, in her words, Christ himself came down and took possession of me. So it's a, an encounter with, with the personal Christ. Um, it's, to my knowledge, this is the, the only such encounter with the personal Christ. Um, mm-hmm. So this is mm-hmm. it. You know, it's a rather spare um, smattering of experiences that that sort of have her off and on her way in her relationship to to Christ um, and and her really fraught relationship with Christianity. So that's that's in 1938. In 1940, of course, the Germans take Paris. She and her family leave Paris on the very last train. Uh, they make their way down to Marseille, just you know, by the skin of their teeth. They make their way down there and. Uh, while there, she she strikes up a a relationship. It's it's sort of almost a friendship with a Dominican friar named Father Perrin, and and the reason it's almost a friendship is that Father Perrin, of course, um, is is eager to sort of seize upon this experience that she's had, these experiences she's had, and um, and make a Christian of her. You know, that's clearly where mm-hmm. this is supposed to go, and. Um, terribly eager to learn, she. She, she will not become a Christian. She never does. She, there are a few ways to understand that refusal. Um, certainly she has a host of, of intellectual um, questions and frustrations. Um, some really, I think, insoluble problems. Um, and, and so there's, there's that, but there's also, I think this is more interesting and, and in a way deeper. She, she has this insight that, um, that maybe the truest way to be a Christian, you know, Christian in the sense of that, that Christianity of the enslaved, it, it would be to be outside of Christianity. So, you know, if you think of the suffering Christ, the self-emptying Christ, 
um, you know, what, what better way to suffer than to, to be denied baptism, to deny yourself baptism, to, you know, to not enter the fold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to think it all true, you know, to, and, and to be outside of it still. Um, so there's, there's something like that animating her, her thought. Uh, Perrin introduces her at, at her request, introduces her to Gustave Thibon, who is a, a writer and a farmer. Um, he, well, he owns an estate. I don't know that he's actually out in the, right. the vineyard. Um, but she's longing to to put her hands to work very much like she was longing to to go into the factory here she wants to to work and um, on a farm and and be a farmhand and she does in fact participate in a grape harvest and and she and Tibon become great friends it's it's to him that she's going to entrust all of her notes when in 1942 she and her her parents make their way to the U.S. So her parents refuse to go to the U.S. unless she comes with her. That's the condition of them going. And of course, she she has to deliver them to safety. So she goes with them to the U.S. and then promptly turns around and goes to London to join the, the French resistance. And while in London, she... Um, so she's she's writing she's actually working for Charles de Gaulle which is fascinating to me she's 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 working on a you know a set of political treatises um trying to think through how to organize a, a society and um and of course de Gaulle is going to find her work just utterly unusable um but yeah but perhaps we can talk a little bit about where she's where she's going with that work she um again very very much like like she did as a you know five year old six year old she decides that she's only going to eat what she imagines the French are eating um you know what they're rationed under German occupation so she's um she's severely malnourished she she contracts tuberculosis dies ultimately of of cardiac failure on the coroner's report. Um, she's called a suicide. They, the idea is that she's she starved mm. herself to death. And scholars have come back, you know, friends, scholars, a lot of people have weighed in on this. And, and I think the, the thought now is, no, that, that really wasn't her goal. She, this was not a suicide. She, to be sure, she was malnourished, but this was um, illness that took her life. <laughs> Yeah, but that's so. That's that's where we find mm-hmm. her. Um, that at the age of of thirty four, mm-hmm. young yeah. and young. Well, can you now maybe take us talk a little bit uh, about um, what do you take to be sort of central? Uh, we're talking. You know, we've chosen to sort of concentrate on gravity and grace. So let's kind of hone in on that for a minute. Um, or a few minutes, uh, where, mm. where should we sort of start thinking about that and feel free, you know, as you, as you answer that to, if you want, uh, tie it back, you know, to things in the, in the biography. Sure. Um, well, I, I, I don't know that one could, could find their way in without recognizing and appreciating that her, her affiliation is is first and foremost to to truth, and she has a rather platonic notion of of 
truth and goodness. Um, so that's always her guiding mm-hmm. star. Um, yeah. So she, well, let's see, there are a few ways we could well, do this. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be happy to write, you know, it's, uh, it's an embarrassment of riches. It's also, it's a text and this is important. It's a, it's a text made out of journal entries, notes. It's not, you know, it was never meant to be a cohesive mm-hmm. um, argument or, or treatise. It's um, Tivan did his his very best to to craft a, a legible volume out of it. Um, I mean, perhaps we should just start bare bones with the distinction that she draws between sure, gravity that'd and be grace, great. and and go there. Um, so, f- gravity is is her word of choice for the laws that uh, determine the natural mm-hmm. world. And, and that's sort of clear and intuitive enough, but she's also gonna use the word gravity to describe much of, I mean, the bulk really of what happens in our social life, um, in, in our activities, in our, our intelligence, the activities of our intelligence. Um, so she, and I mean, this you can see this coming out of, for instance, Nietzsche, um, certainly of a piece with certain thinkers of the time. There's this real disillusionment with um, with the free subject that um, that was explored, you know, discovered and explored within the the philosophical and political works of the prior generations. Um, she the the free eye to her isn't in fact free it's it's this kind of function of um you know of our our constitution of the way we're born of the situation we're born into um you know this kind of Nietzschean thought that our ideas um our ideas are, are just sort of reducible to what we ate for mm-hmm. lunch and, and how it sat with us so so for her gravity is all it, it's it's absolutely everything um including what we would think of as as free acts for which we're responsible and the only thing that escapes gravity the only thing that i mean in a sense you could say is truly free um is is going to be what she calls grace and grace is is wholly outside so anytime you you set up a a dualism like this of course that the urgent question is going to be well how how yep. do they connect and where? Where's the point of tangency and how? Where's the pineal gland? It? Right, exactly. Um, and so, in Gravity and Grace, in the the first portion of the book in particular, we find that um, Grace is is kind of first and foremost experienced in in the absolute depths of affliction. So not just not just any affliction. Um, she she makes an important distinction between destruction, which is what we um, we we do to others and what is mm-hmm. done to us and what we can do to ourselves. It's that kind of deadening that can take place, um, what she experienced in the factory, and this other activity, which is you know activity needs to be in scare quotes. There, it's an activity, but it's it's really a hard a, a passivity. It's a this decreation of the self where one. Um, one suffers, but instead of being uh, reified by that suffering or, you know, and or 
um, allowing that suffering to go back into the world, to be expelled from the self and, and to sort of ricochet around mm-hmm. the world as, um, you know, as, as force. Um, if, if we can take it into ourselves and, and truly suffer um, and, and consent to it, and we can talk about what that means, then, then grace can meet us there. And it's, it's the grace of God, but it's something that, um, that isn't bound by the laws of gravity. So grace, grace is the, the vehicle of, of miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the natural world, that's what it would be. She doesn't talk about this here. She talks about it elsewhere that, you know, that, like the miracles of Christ, for instance, could be accounted for as, um, as expressions of grace, you know, that's why it was that the natural world was subverted in those moments. It was grace. Um, and in social relations, she's, there are some interesting affinities here with, with like Hannah Arendt, um, moments of compassion, moments of forgiveness. These seem to her to be expressions of grace. They're, they're unthinkable within the logic of Mm -hmm. gravity. Um, and, and much of what passes for forgiveness for her is actually just going to be the, the workings of gravity. It's not, it doesn't actually count, but true forgiveness. And for her, this is like a technical term. She has a really, um, I find strange and counterintuitive definition of forgiveness, but true forgiveness is, is something that really only grace can. Can you say a little bit more about the counterintuitive definition of, of forgiveness? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, a quote I'd love to pull up on this. Um, I, so <laughs> actually I would, so, uh, one of the things I do, I write, um, I write emails to the children in mm-hmm. our parish every week. And right now we're reading about Joseph, the life of Joseph. And we've just, um, we've just read what is often characterized as the scene of forgiveness um, where Joseph forgives his, right. his brothers for their absolutely brutal portrayal. But, but the language is so odd. And I, I couldn't help but think um, that the biblical author and, and they have a similar thought about forgiveness um, here. The, the language in the Bible is that um, he says to his brothers, you know, you see, it wasn't, it wasn't you. It wasn't you who betrayed me. God actually has brought all of this about. Um, this is all God's work. And so, you know, my, my thought there is, well, then right, it's not forgiveness, right. you know, in forgiveness, you say, you know, you fouled up, you really fouled up, um, you committed harm, and I suffered that harm. And, and, you know, in light of all of that, you know, with all of that firmly before us, I forgive you. But for Ve, as for the biblical author, you know, I think the question for the biblical author is, could Joseph have said that as mm-hmm. a slave? I mean, is that, is that utterable? Is that actually the form of forgiveness? Or is this just because of providence and the way that providence has brought him to this incredible station in Egypt? Um, but for Vey, the thought with forgiveness is that um, to forgive another, we really have to believe that they haven't harmed us at all. We have to know that what they've done is um, illuminated our true station and, hmm. um, and, and told us something true about ourselves. And, and, yeah, and there's this thought that it, we, in, in forgiveness, it's not, I mean, I think absolution might even be right. a better word for it. Of course, it's not her word, but it's, we simply, we simply take whatever harm and we, um, we throw our hands up and we say, no harm, no harm done right. at all. Right, right. So it's almost as though forgiving, and in that way, 
includes, so this word doesn't fit quite either, but it includes forgetting, um, right? But in right. the sense of, of, of sort of no longer taking it, there was anything to remember. Right. Yeah, that is right. interesting. And so, you know, as a counterpoint, Hannah Arendt thinks that um, forgiveness and, and promising, that both of these acts are, are they have a privileged place in her political thought. She thinks that they're extraordinary because of the way that they set us up to relate to the future. So in forgiving, we take, you know, she has a similar idea as, as Bay of, of gravity. You know, we take um, just this preponderance of violence that would just ricochet without end, you know, just move through people, pass through people and rebound. Um, and we, we put a true stop to it. We, we free the future of the past. So the past, you know, has its grip on the present, has its grip on the future, save that we forgive and we, we, we stop, we bring it to a stop and we go forward in a new way. And I mean, what's, what's so then powerful, if, if they sort of agree about that much, is that Hannah Arendt, you know, her thought is great. Now we've opened the future up. Um, now we have a future. But for Vey, Vey is really skeptical mm-hmm. about the future, thinks the future is... Um, the territory of the imagination um, thinks that it's it, um, it's it's sort of a grand temptation for her, and so forgiveness, I think, for her has to belong to the present moment, has to seat us that much more firmly in the present and in our affliction and our suffering. Um, it just it just sets us there. We, I think, for her, it's a it's it is it's part of a package of practices. Yes. <laughs> Um, by which we deny ourselves the future, um, reckon with our death, um, accept our death fully. Right. So for her, yeah. I think, I mean, does this seem right to you that you might say something like the way that they understands forgiveness, the act itself sort of thematizes decreation. Um, that, yeah, that you're absolutely. already, by, by not taking it there, taking there to have been an injury and so on, you're already sort of engaged in this project of, of decreation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, truly. She, yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, this, this, oh, I was going to say the, the notion of, of decreation is one in her thinking that I've come back to uh, a bunch of times because it, I, I'm very interested in it as a, as a kind of option, you know, among terms, you mentioned one like destruction, um, but even perhaps mm. words like deconstruction, um, you know, mm. that there's what she has in mind by decreation is something that is you know, so interestingly different than a lot of these other sort of destruction words. Um, mm. uh, and trying to locate the difference there, I think, is is really interesting. I mean, this talk, of, I take it that for her, you know, the notion of decreation only makes sense against the backdrop of sort of prior understanding of creation. Right. So that I, what, what, what is decreated is something that has been created and you know, that that's crucial to understanding, you know, what, what decreation is because decreation is in a sense, a kind of, again, I think this sits us back to what I, I believe you were probably thinking of when you were talking about the difficulties of consent or our need to come back to that idea but decreation becomes this sort of strange way in which uh, the person creatively undoes himself or herself. Um, Mm. You know, there's the, the, the notion of creation is sort of 
ineliminable in the attempt to understand what decreation itself <laughs> is. Um, it seems to me, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think you know. I imagine her, and I I, I think y you you also have her, you know, on your shoulder, putting up a fight here. I imagine her um, chafing against the thought that um, that the eye asserts itself right. as creative in in the process of decreation, and in the the early portions of the book. I think we really see her in a full-blown struggle against that. Um, there's this a kind of, um, well, just an incredible anxiety about, about the I and about the, the myriad ways in which the I says I. Um, she, wants, she wants the I to always be rather me, to be in mm -hmm. the objective um, place. And, and, then, and then I find... I mean, there are maybe glimmers of this early in the book, but certainly by the end of the work, and again, this isn't her organizational structure, but, but the way that Tibon has organized it, by the end of the book, I think we have a more um, humane, grounded, sane, sustainable vision that, that can account for the way that grace um, is able to, to work even with the eye, the eye that asserts itself, that there's, you know, it's a mustard seed, it's yeast in, in the bread. And though the, you know, though the, the bread is made up of flour and water and, and you know, all the stuff of gravity, um, if, if only we can have just this, this lightning flash of a moment where grace seizes us, um, that, that will be yes. enough. And from there, it can keep working in us. Yeah, well, this, this struggles with the I, you know, it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, I mean, they, they, they sort of surround her, especially insofar as she's thinking in Christian terms, because it seems to me there's a, a similar mm -hmm. kind of fraught, you know, uh, place for the I in Christianity you know, in general. I'm not saying it comes to exactly the same thing, but I think, you know, there's this, mm -hmm. this kind of struggle and you see it reproduced in I think a lot of uh, thinkers who are trying to think, you know, carefully and deeply in what we might call Christian categories. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And certainly there are strains in Christianity that go you know, in, in directions like the direction she goes in. Um, but there's also like, you know, I think about this a lot because I'm working with children. I mean, there's also this really kind of sturdy Christianity where, um, you know, you're made in the image of God and you and your personality get to refract God's light and, um, and, and you're celebrated, you know, and, and you, and not only are you celebrated and are you called to celebrate others, but you, you know, you get to celebrate yourself in a sense and enjoy you know, there's just pleasure and enjoyment, and there's, um, and that is not her. No, that's you know, not the strain she's picking that's up. That's not on, her Christianity, but... and that's not yeah. Um, and I, so, you know, reading her, I have this experience um, where I'm, you know, I'm just trying to kind of get my critical glasses on and like, you know, pick a little fight with her just just to get some productive traction with her. Um, and anytime I think I've got something, think I've got like a, a you know a little intellectual quibble, I. I find myself thinking, no, I'm just, I'm just not as good as she <laughs> is. This is actually just a spiritual failing right, on my part. Right. It's just that I'm, um, you know, I'm just inappropriately lustily attached to, um, 
you know, all my, my pleasures. And yeah. Well, so, and even that, you know, that, that yeah. it's a, a lovely idea to bring up. I mean, just, just the image though, of being made in the image of God is itself. I mean, I think, you know, really duplex in a funny way, right? I mean, yes, mm-hmm. I get to be the reflection, but that's what I am. The reflection, you know, yeah, uh, the, right. the idea that that's, that's just sort of, yay, go get them t-shirt slogan material you know, uh, strikes me as being, let's say, a flat-footed reading of the passage. Um. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think that's true. I. um, But I understand perfectly what you mean. I I mean, you know, there are plenty of of t-shirts just like that, uh, you know, that are there. I see Mm -hmm. them, you know, pretty much daily on campus at Auburn. So it's, you know, it's not like I'm hallucinating them. I I need only to recall, uh, well, I guess before the right. pandemic, I haven't seen so many people on campus lately. Um, right. But, um, you know, I, I'm going to ask you this just because this touches on a shared interest of ours. Uh, we don't have to go very far with it. And I've never been sure that I was I was doing anything but but confusing myself when thinking this. But you know, one reason the notion of decreation has uh, been so tantalizing to me, and I've come back to her on it again and again, is that it always seemed to me to be an interesting way of trying to capture this moment in Wittgenstein's thought, uh, a way of understanding what Wittgenstein does to philosophical problems, that there's a sense in which what he does is decreate them. And, you know, I think this has a lot to do with, it has a lot to do with the talk about the I and so on, because of, of course, Wittgenstein's understanding of the place of will in the structure of philosophical problems. Um, and it just, you know, always seemed to me that there's something, there's an interesting kind of inflection of Wittgenstein available here. If the idea is that Wittgenstein's not so much dissolving problems as decreating them. Um, mm-hmm. But in, you mm-hmm. didn't feel any deep need to comment on that. It's just a place where uh, I've come back to her and puzzled a bit about, you know, that term and what, to what extent you could push it, you know, in some other directions. Right. I, yeah, I, no, I think, I think that's really rich, really fecund. I think, um, I think for her decreation proper as a technical term can only be something that yes. an individual soul uh-huh. undergoes. But, um, but I think you're exactly right that, that our, um, these philosophical knots that we tie ourselves into, I mean, they're not unlike, um, Oh, various self-deceptions whereby we, you know, say commit adultery. Um, it, it that we that they're they're charged with moral error, mm-hmm. and one of the ways to um, address them, fix them, is, is to is is to work on our souls such that we um, shut ourselves up, pay close attention, see clearly, and in seeing clearly will be, you know, will be so exposed in our error and will be so moved, you know, for her, it's really important that this is actually, this is like a, a criterion for the good. It's, it, 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 it's foolproof. It works every time. If we, if we are in fact fully attentive, um, goodness will simply move through us. We'll become instruments mm-hmm. of the good and, and we'll, we'll be good. You know, adultery won't be possible and certain kinds of philosophical 
problems will be possible. I think I, I found myself thinking about this throughout um, and remembering that she wrote her thesis on Descartes, that I, I think she would love Cavell's reading of mm-hmm. skepticism. I think it would strike her as exactly right. Um, yeah, yeah, that strikes me right too. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it. Let's let's move into a slightly different topic. Um, all these things, of course, are related in her, but she talks a tremendous amount about attention. Um, you've mentioned it mm. you know, several times. I, I wonder if you could just you know, say a little bit more about what she has to say about attention or how you think about uh, the role of attention. I mean, for instance, what is it about the kind of attention or pitch of attention you were just describing that allows, as it were, goodness to flow through? Hmm. Well, I, I think the answer to that question can only be God. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it's, it's her God. So it's a, a highly remote God. Um, it's, not, it's not a personal God. Um, she has a personal Christ, but not a personal God. Um, yeah, but her sense of attention, you know, it's, she likens it to reading. And I think reading is a mm-hmm. wonderful example, um, not least because it's so, it's so mundane. So we, you know, we've had this experience of, of learning to read as children and it, it, it takes training. She, um, she has, you know, there's a portion of this book called training and, and she has writings where she's really quite um, explicit about the fact that yes, she's engaged in aesthetic activities. That's what she's doing. She's, um, she's subjecting herself and forming herself as a certain kind of subject. Um, of course, she thinks that this is an absolutely, uh, um, that the, the project is doomed insofar as it, it is only ever her subjecting herself, her forming herself as a subject. Um, it will only, the only success that can come of it is that by preparing herself in a certain way, you know, teaching herself to read, mm-hmm. say, um, that she will experience the, you know, you could think of it again with this metaphor of reading the words that the words will hit her from without and she'll, she'll be educated. She'll be brought out of herself um, in the experience of reading. God will, God will reach in and take her, seize her and do mm-hmm. something with her. And yeah, she's, she's very, so one of the things I love about Bay, absolutely love about her. Um, so she's one of these rare thinkers who like really gives sin its yes. due. So we see this, you know, in the early portions of the book where she's talking about the consolations of sin and, and how good it feels when we've, when we've endured suffering, when we're, we're actively suffering, you know, I, we're, we're afflicted. Um, and one of the things we can do with that affliction is then, you know, um, we can, we can go out and pounce. We can, we can subject somebody else to what yes. we're suffering. She talks about having that impulse in herself to, to create in another the exact pain that she herself is undergoing. And it, um, and you know, Whereas other thinkers, I think, are really quick to say, but, oh, but this never works. Or like, oh, but this is really bad. And, you know, it's a, she's like, no, it, it absolutely works. It totally works. That's what's so, um, that's why it's so incredibly intoxicating. That's why we're so in the grip of it, is that mm-hmm. it works. And so, so there's her appreciation of sin there. I think she's also, another place where we see her, um, her respect for and appreciation for how sin works is in her um, discussion of, of, all the things that, that impede attention, that they impede attention, but they also seem to be constitutive of it. So she's really aware that we are, you know, conditioned creatures and that, you know, how it is that we come to read anything, make sense of the world around us, have concepts, have categories, do anything with those concepts and categories is, is 
by virtue of prejudice. That's just how our mind works. We, we bring our concepts to bear and our concepts are marked by, no, oh, you know, the people around us, our station, mm-hmm. our, you know, all of our experiences, et cetera. And, and yet she thinks that, um, you know, while that could, that could lead us to a really tragic sense of not, not being able to touch the world, that would be the, you know, Cartesian skepticism, the sense that I, I'm not actually going to be able to get it, the thing in itself ever. It's so, it's so fatally mm-hmm. mediated. Um, she thinks that no, in fact, you can, um, or, or rather, again, the language of you can would be problematic for her. It's, it's, you know, it does, it will, the world reality will impress itself mm-hmm. upon you. And so later in the text in Gravity and Grace, we find that what before had only belonged to the person of God and the activity of grace now starts, it, it's as if now it's becoming diffuse in in reality as a whole, in the universe. She seems to think that it's not just, um, it's not just this very solitary exercise of, of um, enduring affliction that can open up space for grace. But it's, it's also just the activity of, of being in the world and seeing, for instance, seeing another person in all of their reality um, or, or seeing something mm-hmm. beautiful, you know, listening to a Gregorian chant. Um, I've been reading a lot of Jane Austen lately, and there's that great moment in Northanger Abbey when Catherine, being sort of upbraided by Henry, tries to change the subject and says, quite truly, I have learned to love a hyacinth. Uh, and that line just struck me since I've been thinking about they as well as this very they like line. You know, I've learned to love a hyacinth mm. and Henry thinks, you know, this is actually quite an accomplishment. Uh, and he says, you know, who knows, but you may soon learn to love a rose. Um, uh, in fact, I, that kind of leads me actually into the, the next question I wanted to ask you really quickly, still kind of staying with the notion of attention. But one thing that strikes me in they, uh, and again, I've been thinking about this for a variety of, of my own reasons, but, it came uh, kind of strikingly to me as I was reading the text again, in preparation to talk to you, is the, the interesting kind of relationship there is in, in they between attention and imagination. Um, the, you know, mm. Well, in Northanger yeah, Abbey is yeah, exactly. all about and, and, and I think, well, yeah. Austin in many ways is all about it. I mean, her term isn't mm-hmm. typically attention, it's observation. But, you know, she's, mm-hmm. so many of the heroines are marred by, you know, expectation, imposition, imagination, in effect. Emma, of course, is the, mm-hmm. the you know, the, the right. character who's, who's most uh, like this. But Catherine is clearly her progenitor uh, in Austin's mm-hmm. work. And it just, it strikes me that, you know, this is one of the things that you see in vain. It's one of the things I think that's also connected to things about the future in her. Because I think, you know, she she can see in sort of the way that Austin sees and the way that perhaps Johnson taught Austin to see that your know, futurity is the playground of the imagination. Um, you know, and one thing that it does, mm-hmm. of course, is it draws you out of the present and out of attention. Right. And so it seems like there's a kind of, uh, it just strikes me often there's an interesting kind of, you know, opposition in they between attention and imagination and that much of what she says against imagination isn't really so much an attack on that faculty as it were, in and of itself, but is, you know, a worry about, as it were, preserving the proper sphere and the sort of hope of pure functioning of attention. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious, like when you make that latter caveat, do you have a sense that in they, there is, there is some appropriate place for imagination? Uh, you know, that's actually the, the thing I'm kind of working toward. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, you know, it's one of the things that 
is, I think, interesting in in Austin. And I mentioned Johnson. It's also really interesting in Johnson. Johnson talks about you know the hunger of the imagination and spends a great deal of time in his essays talking about the regulation of the imagination. Uh, and so there's these mm-hmm. things that sound in many ways like things that they would say, but in perhaps unsurprisingly in Johnson and Austin, you know, what's said is in a sense in the grip of probabilities, you know, what you can do uh, to regulate the imagination mm-hmm. where there are times when, though I agree with you that in the progress of passages in Gravity and Grace, things get softened a bit as we get toward the end of the book. There are moments where everything is just so austere in they, <laughs> where, you know, there's Certainly. like no concession at all to, uh, uh, to, you know, the, the fact that the imagination is, is not something you can just extirpate, um, you know, not mm-hmm. something that you can, you can just get rid of. And, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, for instance, in, in Vey's talk about reading, if she didn't have more of an opportunity than she realized to perhaps talk there about some kind of interplay mm-hmm. between attention and imagination that would actually be salutary and not just, you know, not mm-hmm. just problematic. Oh, that's so interesting. I, um, I work, when I'm doing my work as a tutor, I work with people, you know, young people who um, often, you know, one of their core issues is reading comprehension. They don't know how to read yeah. at all. Um, I mean, they're, they, it, 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 I mean, they're, some of them, it, it's as if they're illiterate, you know, without being literally illiterate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, it, and it, it's such a, a, a puzzle and it's such an honor to work, work with young people on this. Um, but it's such a puzzle to figure out how to to introduce them to reading. And I, I'm just struck hearing what you're saying. I hadn't thought of this before, but uh, you know, much of what we're doing is prompting the imagination. Certainly it's attention. Yes. What are the actual words on the page? What do they actually mean? What do they mean for the author? You know, it's so much about getting yourself out of the way. So you're not just making up what they're saying, but then there's also this really important work of, well, what do you think is coming next? What do you anticipate? Why, you know, what, like, what questions do you have? What, it, it, there is this, um, this work of the self where the self is asserting him or herself as an interlocutor that, that seems to me indispensable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes very much yeah, to your point. Yeah. No, I think that, that that's sort of the, the line of thought I've had about that. Too. Uh, again, not entirely clear, you know, how to fit it into everything that she says, but wondering if she didn't have an opportunity there to perhaps reflect more on how that might, how that might go. Because, of course, you know, taking North and Grabby for a moment, just as the example, I mean, it, it's it's a work of the imagination that's describing, you know, decrying a certain right. work of the imagination. I, that's got to be something that, of course, Austin knows and delights in and wants the reader to delight in, in a certain right, way. Right, right. When she <laughs> accuses her yes. readers of, um, or accuses her, her characters, rather, of exactly. reading Exactly. Well, and when, and when they start writing them themselves, you know, when Henry tells right. Catherine what she's going to find in Northanger Abbey, all the horrors and, mm-hmm. you know, sliding passages and sort of sliding <laughs> doors and hidden passages. Um, right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of scanning, trying to think what, you know, where does she talk about imagination um, or the work of imagination in a you know, in, in a positive light. And I, I think the closest we could get, it's, it's not clear to me that this is imagination quite, but she talks about training oneself to whenever, whenever um, puffed up with pride, mm-hmm. you know, whenever having a happy experience of oneself as, um, you know, having achieved this or that to immediately follow with um, the imagine to bring, to bring to mind, I think through imagination that she doesn't say that to bring to mind your most abject 
humiliation um, and to really hold that mm-hmm. in mind, get that firmly in view as a way of, of, of chasing yes. yourself, bringing yourself back to level. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. Well, do you have any, we're heading toward the end here, but uh, are there any other topics you really wanted us to get to any other things you were, you know, sort of most intent on having, having a bit to say about before we, we finish up? Oh goodness. Um, well, I, <laughs> you know, it's a testament to her, to her brilliance that, you know, I feel like we could go yeah. on and on and on. Um, yeah, I, I, there, there are two things that I've really been in the grip of, um, just, per, you know, just this week reading her. So one, one question I've had, and this goes back to her biography. It, um, I'm, I'm so curious. I'm so stymied by that childish impulse to not eat sugar. If the troops can't mm-hmm. eat sugar, I, I think, I think part of why I'm, I, I stumble over this is that it, it makes sense. And certainly, you know, we know children who, um, who are like this in their, <laughs> their lust for justice, you know, their, their sense of injustice, their, um, their eagerness to, to do something. So what, what's interesting to me is that it's not as though this happens in childhood and then she kind of grows out of it and grows into what we might think of as like a more mature response to suffering where, you know, either she's going to do something about the um the deprivations of others or um like like i've been trying to think about it you know trying to create a little parable out of it so you know there's i imagine a a person who uh, is without a coat and it's cold out and you know one could be moved with, by compassion for this mm-hmm. person so so one could um one could work to go find a coat for this person which is, I think, what most like charitable work right. is about. It's like well, we will, we will help you. <laughs> um, we will alleviate your suffering. There's, there's a real beauty and nobility in this other move, which is not I'm going to go and you know fetch you a coat, but rather I'm going to take the coat off my back and give it to you. Um, so that's an option too. But neither of those are vase. You know, they're not vase as a five year old, six year old. They're also not vase as a thirty four year old. What she wants to do over and over again is, you know, at a real remove from the person who's cold, you know, it's, like, it's as if she's like watching them on TV. They're, they're somewhere else entirely. Um, she wants to take off her coat and be cold right. as well. Right. And it's not as if, it's not as if they're together. It's not as if there's a kind of sympathetic, it, it's not, it's not solidarity in a way that could possibly touch the other person at least couldn't touch them in any like normal material. Like we'd have to get very sci-fi yeah, for this to, right. to actually do anything right. for the other person. Um, sci-fi and or religious, but she doesn't, she doesn't explore this. It's, I mean, I think maybe also another thing about this that, that really impresses me is she doesn't write about this. This certainly isn't a protocol that she's offering to others. Um, she just does it. And she just does it over and over and over again. She, it's as if, so there are a couple ways of thinking about it. It's as if she, um, you know, one idea is she's so self-abnegation comes so naturally to her. She has such a strong drive towards that, that this is perhaps a way of organizing that drive for her. And I, you know, I've played with the idea that maybe she's even trying to pull herself back from the brink um, of like self-destruction mm-hmm. that this, you know, if, if this is how others are living, you know, with an emphasis on living, 
then I too will live this way. And this will be a way for me to live that I can, that I can right. tolerate. Um, I can tolerate Live living with myself. I'm living as they are. Right. So that's, that's one thought. Um, yeah. I, I, I also, you know, another thing, I, I wonder if she's sort of covetous of, of others suffering, mm-hmm. you know, that would be the, that would maybe be the ungenerous way of reading it. Um, so I don't want to psychologize it away, no. I, but I, I yeah, it, it, but it's just, it's just so compelling. No, it is. I, I agree. It's once you've, once you've got <laughs> that troubling. image of her making that decision at that age, it's just, yeah, it just sort of stays with you. Um, I agree mm-hmm. completely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I also agree that, you know, it, the covetousness of their suffering does seem like, you know, not the best way to go, but it also is, you know, certainly going to come to mind if you sit and think about it for very long. You know, because at times it, mm-hmm. it, there are times at which it starts to look like she's engaged in a race to be the least of the least of these. Um, and, right. And she doesn't she doesn't want others to right. do that. You know, very, very late in the text. She has these, uh, for me, just crucial lines. I mean, they're cr- like I'm hanging on to them because they're the only thing that can save me from what otherwise is just, you know, like like damning judgment um, by they. If, you know, I feel like the text has its eyes on me, but she talks about the the comforts, the, the blessings of, of home, of family life, of, you know, and, and she says, we, you know, we really mustn't take these away from others. Um, these, she seems to think that actually those for, for all except saints, you know, for all but the saintly um, are, are going to be part and parcel with how they come to have attention and to, you know, undergo grace. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a, you know, there's this interesting term in, um, Eastern Orthodoxy, the interiorized monasticism, and mm-hmm. you know, there's there's this thought that that's something that's sort of compatible in some way with living, you know, kind of ordinary bourgeois life. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, there there are these moments where you you know, I mean, there's certainly there's this there's this deep sense in which there's a kind of interiorized monasticism. In they, I mean, monasticism, not in the sense that she's thinking about monastics and, you know, trying to imitate them necessarily, but some feeling that that's what's happening in her is hard to resist. And yet, as you said, at the same time, she does have some placating passages where there are these, you know, moments or standard, you know, things that people care about, like home and so on, aren't damned, but are actually sort of eulogized, uh, at any rate, not brought, mm-hmm. not brought just under the harsh <laughs> judgmental eyes of the text uh, in the ways that they seem to be early on. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, in some ways that goes into, and I, it's fine if we don't have time for this, but, but the other, for me, really burning question was, um, you know, what is the relationship between justice as she uses the term, which is, it's related to the judgment or rather the non-judgment of God. It's, it's this, um, it, it's, it, I mean, it reminds me very much of Buddhism. It's just an ascent to what is, what, what does that justice have to do with, you know, justice, justice, yeah. as, as we would hope it would be executed by the state or, um, as it would take place in our relations where, um, you know, people are, are called to, to bear responsibility for their free acts you know, even though for her, you know, no act is free, free, you know, properly mm-hmm. free, but, you know, the, the, say it's a qualified freedom. They're, you know, they're responsible for them. They, they suffer natural consequences, appropriate consequences. Um, 
and things are made right by by getting by getting that equation right um yeah i i, I mean this it, it may just have to be a mystery that yeah. stands um, well it's a, it's a good it's a good question but... and i think a really good place probably for us to end uh given all that's mm-hmm. going on around us uh something worth mm-hmm. worth thinking about well carly i really appreciate this uh and I've enjoyed it a great deal. Oh, likewise, Kelly. Um, yeah, very much. I uh, hope we'll get a chance maybe sometime down the road to come back and talk with you again. Oh, okay, I'd love great. that. That sounds wonderful. Well, take care. Okay. I'd like to thank Carly Lane for joining us on the podcast. And I'd like to close by reading a couple of passages from late in Gravity and Grace. These are consecutive passages as the book has been organized, and they're both from the section called Readings. Justice. To be ever ready to admit that another person is something quite different from what we read when he is there or when we think about him, or rather to read in him that he is certainly something different, perhaps something completely different from what we read in him. Every being cries out silently to be read differently. We read, but also we are read by others. Interferences in these readings, forcing someone to read himself as we read him, slavery, forcing others to read us as we read ourselves, conquest, a mechanical process more often than not, a dialogue between deaf people. That's the show for today. I hope you will join us again in the future. Take care and listen for the sound of thinking.